All right, everybody go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 15. And you're going to need a study guide. So if you see a chair with, an, with a study guide around you, uh, go ahead and pass it to the center aisle. And we'll, uh, if you don't have a study guide, just throw up a hand and we'll make sure everybody has one before we start. So throw up a hand if you don't have one and get your extras to so folks helping them pass them out. While that's going down, I, I just thought about this and I want to encourage you with something. I want to encourage us when we enter into a time of worship that we are honest with the Lord. And what I mean by that is I just thought of this. There was a line in that song and it said this. It said, when I think that God, His Son not sparing, and then it says, y'all know what it says? I scarce can take it in. And so, I just warn you of this. Like, don't ever fall into this posture to where you sing words that say, I scarce can take it in. And anybody around you and anybody that knows you can see that you're about to fall asleep. And so that's the warning there. That really, like imagine the Holy Spirit leaning in. Like really, like you scarce can take it in, really. And so there's two ways that I want to encourage you with that. Uh, Not to be dishonest with Christ. You don't need to get in the habit of of proclaiming affections that you don't have and you don't care that you don't have them. But there is a way... When you're cold to Christ, when you, see th- when you sing things like that, the prayer is, Lord, I'm not feeling this right now, but I want to. And I'm asking for your help to glory in Christ and to worship Christ. That's what we want to go after. We want to go after being honest in the presence of God and not getting lulled into this hypocritical hypocrisy. Just warn you in that. encourage you with that. All right. Acts 17 describes the Bereans. And one of their characteristics of the Bereans is that they are noble because they, with all eagerness, they are ready to hear the Word of God. I just want to ask you, is that where you're at this morning? That you are leaned in and, and you are ready to hear the Word of God taught. And then the back half of that is what's going to happen in your life this afternoon and Monday through Friday, that you are going to compare everything that you hear. You're going to read the Word yourself and you're going to check it against the Scriptures to make sure that these things are so. So this is what we're going after in this time. If you haven't been with us in the past uh, few months, we've been studying through the final days in the life of Christ. Starting with Mark chapter 10, we entered into a study of His Passion Week, the final days of His life on the planet. And today we're going to study the event that precedes the central event in all of history. And the central event is the crucifixion of Christ. What we're going to study today is what happens immediately before the most important event in history. So I encourage you, that we, we're about to lean in, we're about to read the Word, we're about to study it together, and we stand on holy ground here. And all the Word is God-breathed. And I don't mean to emphasize anything that the Holy Spirit doesn't, but this is we're getting to the climax of the entire scope of the revelation of God in Scripture. And so we're standing on holy ground, and that means, what does that mean for us? Just like every week, we need help from God. Me and you have something in common in this moment, and I know that you know this. I need help from God to teach His Word in such a way that you understand it, that it moves your affections in such a way that it's true, and you need help from God to hear it, to hear it with the proper affections, to hear it and your heart be moved. And so we need the Holy Spirit. We need Him to be all over this time. We need His help. I need His help to teach, and you need His help to hear the Word of God. And so we're about to pray, and we're about to ask God for His help. And I invite you to pray with me. Lord, we come to You today. Full of praise, Lord, with what You've done. Christ Jesus, we worship You today. 
There's none like you, Lord. There's none. There's there's no work like what you've done. There's no rival to your bloody cross, Lord. God, we will praise you for this, for what you've done for us in Jesus for ten million years, Lord. And there'll never be enough to that we run out of of reasons to praise you, Lord, and your cross. And I pray, God, that you would move our hearts today, Lord. We ask that you would help us, God. Holy Spirit, we know that it's Your work to exalt Christ to us. And we just say amen to that. Lord, come. Holy Spirit, come upon us today. Come upon our hearts. Come upon our minds, God. Guard our minds from error about Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that You would guard our hearts from coldness toward Christ. Lord, inflame our hearts with passion for our Savior. Lord, help us to see You rightly. Help us to linger over Your words. And help us to behold You in glory today, Lord Jesus. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, we're going to start by reading our passage in Mark 15. We're going to go through verse 15. Starting at verse 1 through verse 15. I want you to read this with me. And I'll just remind you, these are the most important words you're going to hear today because these are the only words that you're going to hear that have zero error. And they're full of the power of God. These are the words straight from the Holy Spirit. Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. This is the Word of God. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led Him away and delivered Him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked Him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd and to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Wow, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Alright, our story today is about Jesus' trial before Pilate. And I want to show you that this story is full of irony. Now, I'll just give you a couple of ways that this is true. You just think about this. This story is full of irony. It looks like on the surface, we just read these verses, it looks like on the surface that sin is about to destroy Jesus. But actually what's happening, and we know this, we we know the full revelation of God, and we know that up under these things, we know that the exact opposite is happening. And Jesus, in fact, is about to destroy sin because He's going to His cross. It's full of irony. 
Think about this. It looks like Jesus is being judged by a pagan ruler named Pilate. But when this plays out, we see that Jesus is really the one, that He's the one evaluating Pilate. And Pilate's eternal destination is going to be determined off what he did with this Christ. It's full of irony. On the surface, it looks like a tragedy. But it's the exact opposite. It's the ultimate victory. So it's full of paradox. Do you understand this? It seems to be on the surface a display of weakness, but it's actually the greatest display of power that God has ever shown. This is, this is the story of the power of God for salvation. So, I encourage you this. We've seen glimpses of Jesus in His final week for several months. And we want to know our Savior well. We want to know His story well. Amen? I want to know Jesus well. And every glimpse I get of Him in His glorious Gospel. And so we're going to lean in. And one of the ways... One of the ways we want to know Him is we're going to lean in to this Roman trial and we want to know Jesus before Pilate. We want to see His perfections and we want to behold His glory before Pilate. This story of the Roman trial, it shows up in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to bounce back and forth between these a pretty good bit today. But I want to start in verse 1 of Mark 15 and I want to show you the setting of this story. Mark 15 verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led Him away and delivered Him over to Pilate. So we'll recap just a little bit. I want you to remember this. The chief priest, the scribes, and the elders, that makes up a body, a group in Israel known as the Sanhedrin. This was the Jewish authority, the Sanhedrin. The night before this story, remember what happened. The Sanhedrin, they arrested Jesus in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane. And they brought Him back to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they, they performed, really it's a sham trial, in the middle of the night. And then the Sanhedrin places a charge on the innocent Savior, on Jesus. It's a sham charge, and they charge Him with blasphemy. Blasphemy is punishable. Under Jewish law, it's punishable by death. So they charged Jesus with something that was punishable by death. But there's a, there's a problem. The Sanhedrin has a problem on their hands. And here's the problem. At this time of this story, Israel is under Roman occupation. They have been conquered by the Romans. And they are ruled by the Caesar. And what that means is that they cannot legally execute a death sentence. The Jews can't do that because they are ruled by the Romans. This is called the right of the sword. And only the Romans could, could execute a capital punishment. The right of the sword. This is one of the most carefully guarded rights in all the Roman Empire. When they would go in and they would conquer lands, this right they guarded jealously. That only the Romans could put them to death. So here's the problem. Ryan touched on this last week. These men, these this Sanhedrin, they're lawmen, they're religious leaders, and, and really all they're concerned about is, 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 I think he used this phrase last week, pseudo-righteousness. It's a righteousness that's a veneer. It appears righteous on the surface, but it's full of hypocrisy on the inside. So these men want to kill Jesus, but they want to do it in such a way that seems legal. And we see in this story, their problem, if Jesus is to be legally executed, then this Sanhedrin is going to have to deliver Jesus over to a Roman court. And then a new trial is going to be held before a Roman judge. 
And the Sanhedrin is going to have to convince this Roman judge that Jesus has deserves something worthy of death. Do you understand this? Okay. Another problem. The charge that the Sanhedrin lays on Jesus was blasphemy. And this is a problem because this is not a, this is not a charge that's admissible in a Roman court. It's not against the law to blaspheme under Roman law. So... They have to establish new charges that are going to hold up in a Roman court. And, and they want charges that will end in the death of Jesus. So in verse 1, we see that the Sanhedrin, they, they consult together. They have a meeting. And at this meeting, they're manipulating things and they're planning things. And what they do at this meeting is they take the religious charge of blasphemy and they manipulate it and transform it into a political charge known as high treason. And this is, what, this is the charge that they bring to the Roman courts and charge Jesus with that He is guilty of high treason. That's why they present Jesus to Pilate as the King of the Jews. This man said He was the King of the Jews. And that would have meant that He opposed Caesar. This was the most serious charge in a Roman court. This is the most serious charge in a Roman court. It was illegal to even dismiss this charge in a Roman court without it being investigated. So when they laid this charge on Jesus, Pilate was bound by Roman law to investigate these charges. So I want you to see, this is the double trial of Jesus, our Savior. He stood trial, a religious trial before the Jewish leaders, and then we see a different picture of Him here. He is, he is on trial now under Roman law. Under Roman law. The Jewish part is done. Ryan preached that last week. And now we're leaning into the Roman part. This is the Roman part. And Jesus prophesied about this double trial. Listen to Mark chapter 10, verse 33. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. That's Pilate. We just saw this happen in this verse. That was a fulfillment of prophecy. So this is the Roman part of the suffering of Jesus. And He knew this was coming several years before it happened. In verse 1, Jesus is delivered over to a man named Pontius Pilate. I want to tell you just a few things about him. This is the appointed Roman governor. He's the leader here. He's over the province of Judea. And that includes, it's like a county that includes the city of Jerusalem. This is Pontius Pilate. He usually governed from, governed from a city named Caesarea. That's a city named after Caesar. But on Jewish feast days, and remember this is Jewish Passover. The night before, they just ate the, la the Passover that became the Lord's Supper. So on these feast days, this ruler would come down to Jerusalem and he would come during the Jewish feast days to make, sh to make sure that he could put a quick end to any Jewish rioting. That's why he's here. So in the sovereignty of God, when this goes down, He brings the Roman ruler within steps of where Jesus will die on His cross. This is a picture. He wanted to be close by to quickly put down these Jewish uprisings. His official residence when He came to Jerusalem, the Roman governor's residence, was known as the Praetorium. And that's the building where Jesus is about to be put on trial before this Roman court, the Praetorium. History tells us that these trials, Roman trials, they were public by law. Anyone could come to them. And here's how they began. An accuser would walk in, and there would be a judge, 
And he would hear the accusations. That's how the trial started. And that's exactly how this one started. Pilate was informed by the charges from the Sanhedrin. And Luke's Gospel gives us the most detail here. I want to read to you Luke 23, verses 1 and 2. I want you to listen to the charges that they carefully construct and present to Pilate about Jesus. Luke 23, 1 and 2. It says, The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the King. So one of the things I want you to see is they flat out lied. They just said that Jesus forbid it to pay tribute to Caesar. Not even two chapters ago, three chapters ago, we see Jesus did the exact opposite. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. They're lying about him. And these charges that they're constructing about him are lies. Okay, They're presenting him as one who wants to oppose and overthrow Caesar. Jesus said he was Christ the King. And what this means is Caesar is the king of the Jews at this point. And anyone else who claimed to be the king of the Jews is seen in direct opposition to Caesar. They will be seen as a revolter, a a rebel of an uprising. And this is the fastest way to get killed in the Roman Empire. You oppose Caesar and you die. This is the charge that they bring before Pilate. And then in verse 2, Pilate investigates this charge of high treason. Listen to verse 2. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. You have said so. So Pilate is investigating these charges. And when he asked him that, please don't think that he is asking out of curiosity. Jesus, are you really the Jewish Messiah? I'd really like to worship you if you were the Jewish Messiah. That's not what he's doing. He's investigating the charges. Is this man claiming to be a king? And then Jesus answers this charge. But he does it in a very cryptic way. This phrase, you have said so, what does that mean? What does that mean? Alright, he does tell Pilate, yes, I am a king, but it's like he immediately qualifies it. And you see this in John 18. Listen, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus in John 18, verse 36. He claims that he's a king, but not the kind of king that Pilate is thinking. John 18, 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. You see what he just did? He just said, yes, I am a king, but I'm not the kind of king that you think. I'm not the kind of king that you're thinking. I'm not here to overthrow the Romans. My king, I'm a king over a spiritual kingdom. So it's yes, but. Jesus answered the question with yes, but. 1 Timothy 6 Verse 13 calls what Jesus just said, it calls it the good confession that he made before Pontius Pilate when Jesus confessed his kingship before this Roman ruler. So Jesus is a king, but he is not here to overthrow Rome. Do you catch that? He's not here to overthrow Roman rule. It is clear When Jesus says, yes, I'm a king, but not what you're thinking, it's clear that Pilate, when he comes away from that encounter, he did not believe that Jesus was the the Christ, the Jewish Messiah. Okay, But he also didn't believe that Jesus was a threat. He believed that Jesus was zero threat to Rome. Because he comes back and he says this. 
Luke 23, verse 4, he comes back to the crowd. He says, I find no guilt in this man. Jesus just said he was a king over a spiritual kingdom. And Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate just declared Jesus innocent of high treason. He didn't believe he was the Jewish Christ. He thought he was crazy. He thought he was off his rocker. But he didn't see him as any threat to Roman rule. Listen to verse 3 through 5. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. So after he confesses his kingship, Jesus refuses to speak any longer. He refuses to answer their charges. And they just come with more. They just come accusing him, maliciously accusing this Christ of lies. How easy would it have been for Jesus to say, I just told you not even two days ago to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. What are you talking about that I'm teaching not pay taxes to Caesar? But instead of doing this, instead of defending himself, Jesus is silent. He refuses to say a word. And this amazes Pilate. You think about this. You're a ruler and you're a judge. And the life of this person is literally hanging in your hands in the sense that whatever you decide is going to happen for this person. And so you would see, and Pilate has seen this many times, that, that the, the defendant would begin to defend these charges. He would make a defense. And then he would begin to plead with his judge for his life. This is not true. I'm pleading for my life. But instead, Pilate looks over and sees Jesus with his mouth shut. And it amazes him. He's never seen a man this peaceful in the midst of life-threatening accusations. The peace of Christ. This silence. I want you, I want you to get a picture of Jesus in His silence. And I, I, want this, I, want, I want us to drive this to worship Christ. This silence of Jesus ensures that Jesus is going to go to His cross. And what that means is His silence tells us that He's dying willingly. He could have made a defense against these charges, but He's dying willingly. And the fact that He refuses to give an answer to these charges shows us that this basically seals His fate. This seals the deal. The Savior's going to His cross. And He's in control of this. He's orchestrating this. This is His choice. That's what we're supposed to take away from this. And His silence is a fulfillment of prophecy. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed... And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, it, that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And what I want us to see is that the silence of Jesus is his grace and his mercy toward us. This is a picture of him shutting his mouth, refusing to defend himself, refusing to beg for his life. Why? Because he's making sure that he is the sheep that's going to the slaughter with his mouth closed. He's doing this for us. He's doing this for us. This is a picture of his grace. I want to ask you this morning, how thankful are you for this silence? How thankful are you that he doesn't rise up and defend himself? That he goes to his cross with his mouth shut because he's going to a slaughter. This is what he did for us. The silent lamb led to the slaughter. At this point, Pilate is in a pickle. And I want to show you that. On one side, he's in a tense 
He's in, he's in a conflict, internal conflict. On one side, his conscience has been pricked regarding the innocence of Jesus. You, I just read you a verse in Luke 20, 23 that he said, I find no guilt in this man. He says that three times in Luke 23 alone. Three times. So on one side, his conscience is pricked and he knows that he is staring face to face with an innocent man. A man that is not guilty of the charge of high treason. But on the other side of this pickle, Pilate is afraid. He's, he's afraid of the Jews. And you see that in John 19 verse 8. He's afraid of the Jews. And it is very important that you understand why. Because something ought to be going off in your mind. Why is a Roman ruler afraid of his subjects? Why is he afraid of the Jews? This is very important that you get this. Okay? He is not afraid of the Jews physically. He's not afraid of the Jews physically. This man is the commander over Roman legions. They can't touch him physically. If they were to try... He would cut them down with his soldiers in a moment. He does not fear them physically. They are not a physical threat. What Pilate fears is he fears the Jews politically. He fears them politically. And what that means is that he fears getting in trouble back in Rome because of a slanderous report sent from the Jews in Jerusalem. He feared losing his job. You need to understand that. He feared the Jews because he feared losing his job. So here's the pickle. And he does what almost every crooked politician does. He refuses to make the hard decision and he leaves it up to someone else to decide for him. It's called kicking the can down the road. I want you to show he did it. It's at least three ways in this story. So he kicks the can down the road. In Luke 23, we don't have this in Mark, but in Luke 23 we find out at, at this point that Pilate sends Jesus to another ruler named Herod the Great. Okay, Herod is another Roman appointed ruler over a different province. The province that Herod is over is Galilee. That's actually where Jesus is from. Herod also makes his way down to Jerusalem on feast days to do what? To put down Jewish uprisings and to pretend that he's worshiping the God of the Jews. So, Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee, Galilee and he sends uh, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. And what does he want him to do? He wants Herod to make this decision for him. He wants Herod to judge Jesus because he, he doesn't want to make a decision for himself. So he's kicking the can down the road. And then the plan backfires because you know what Herod does? He sends Jesus back to Pilate and he says, I find no guilt in this man. He's not any threat to Rome. That's the second witness that declared Jesus innocent of high treason. Under Jewish law, in the book of Deuteronomy, two witnesses are enough to establish a matter. This should have been enough to clear Jesus' name. Pilate sends him, I mean, Herod sends him back to Pilate and, and his first plan backfires. When that didn't work, he goes for number two. This is the second trick up his sleeve. And he thought this was his way out. Listen to verse 6 through verse 10. It says, Now at the feast... He used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. 
And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. So this was the Passover custom. And, and we don't know why the Romans agreed to do this. We just know that they did. We just know that this became a custom. Don't know why, but it was a Passover custom to where on Passover the Roman governor would release a prisoner once a year. It became a tradition. Okay, This is what's happening here. It's like an annual presidential pardon. And the people became to expect it. So it became a custom, a tradition. Pilate saw this as his way out of the pickle. This is how I can satisfy the crowd. This is, I can give them one of the prisoners that they want. Okay, This was his plan. And at this point, we are introduced in this story to a character named Barabbas. Barabbas. Notorious prisoner in custody at the time that this goes down. Most likely... This man, you saw the word insurrection in our text. And that means Jewish revolt, Jewish uprising. Most likely this man is the leader in a Jewish, in a recent, very recent Jewish revolt in Jerusalem. The two thieves that die beside Jesus, most likely his co-conspirators. Barabbas, most likely the leader of this rebellion. I want you to think about Barabbas like a fanatical militant terrorist. Our text just told us that he had committed murder in this insurrection. Most likely, he snuck up and and stabbed a Roman soldier and killed him. That's most likely what happened. This is Barabbas. A very zealous Jew. This is who he is. A very zealous Jew leading a, a revolt against Rome. Kills a Roman soldier most likely. And at this point, he is awaiting his execution in prison. And Pilate must have thought this. Surely... Surely they will pick Jesus over that guy. That was his plan. That was his way out of his pickle. But then we see this plan backfired in verse 11 through 14. Listen to this. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, wow, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So I want you to get this. I want you to drive this down in your bones. These crowd, this crowd standing before Pilate, they just screamed at the top of their lungs and asked for a convicted terrorist instead of the sinless son of God. They screamed and asked for a convicted terrorist instead of the sinless Son of God. And before you get too too cocky or too hard on this situation, this is exactly what we do every time that we choose sin instead of righteousness. Okay, This is a picture of the sinfulness of man. They scream for a guilty murderer instead of the Christ of God. Picture of the sinfulness of man. The Sanhedrin is there whispering in the crowd. They're influencing the crowd. And we know that Satan is behind the Sanhedrin spreading lies, spreading deceit about Christ. And you just, you just think about this. They saw more glory in a convicted terrorist than they did in, in the Christ of God. This is a living illustration of 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And we've been talking about this verse a lot. Listen to this. Living illustration of this. 
The, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The Christ of God is standing right in front of them and they are blind to it. They're blind to it. They see this, this man that is convicted murder as more worthy, more valuable than Jesus. He is probably less than 50 feet away from these people. And they're blind to His glory. They can't see the glory of Christ. Can't see the glory of Christ. At this point in the story, things get to a bowling point. Satan is involved with this. He's stirring up the crowd. I want you to think about a pressure cooker that's been under pressure and then it just all of a sudden just begins to explode. That's what's happening here. This is a satanic influence on this crowd. This is a record of sinful man screaming so loud for the death of the Son of God that Pilate, he sees them begin to riot. They're screaming so loud that Pilate looks on this crowd and says they're rioting. This is a picture of the sinfulness of man. And not only did they want the Son of God dead, they demanded and screamed that He must die with the worst form of death known at this time. And they screamed for crucifixion. They screamed for crucifixion. Don't just put Him to death. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. At this point, Pilate makes one more last-ditch effort to satisfy the crowds. And he has Jesus scourged. Now John chapter 19 clearly shows us that this scourging happens before Pilate sentences Jesus to His cross. This is a last-ditch effort to satisfy the crowds. The Savior was scourged. The Savior was scourged. Those words can slide across our mind and have very, very, very little meaning. And I want to show you that this was a horrific judicial penalty. A horrific Roman penalty. I want you to listen to a commentator, William Lane. He said, A Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent was stripped, bound to a post or a pillar, or sometimes simply thrown to the ground and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. The instrument indicated by Mark was the dreadful flagellum. This was a scourge consisting of leather strips plated with several pieces of bone or lead so as to form a chain. No maximum number of strokes were prescribed by Roman law and men condemned to scourging frequently died by the flogging. There are many accounts of scourging prisoners until their entrails were visible and until their bones lay bare for all to see. Jesus was beaten with a whip that was designed to do more than to strike Him. Jesus was viciously, brutally beaten with a whip that was designed to grip and rip human flesh off of its body. Jesus was brutally tortured by Roman soldiers. This is our Savior. We want to know His story well. This is is what we see. Listen to how Isaiah describes Jesus at this moment. Listen to this. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. At this point, Pilate brings Jesus out. He has Him scourged. 
has him punished and he brings Jesus out before the crowd. Listen to John 19, verses 1 through 5. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. And I want you to try to get a picture in your mind of this event. We know what just happened to Jesus. He was scourged. I want you to see, imagine Him publicly standing there. And I want you to think about how Isaiah just described Him. Marred beyond human semblance. Marred beyond human semblance. Jesus is standing there before this crowd. And He is a bloody pulp. His body is mangled. He is ripped to shreds. He's covered in blood. I think something's going on here when he said, when Isaiah says that he's marred beyond human semblance. I think that features of his face are beaten in to where you can't even tell, number one, that he's Jesus. Maybe even number two, that he's a man. Maybe the flog grabbed parts of his face and ripped them off. He's beyond human semblance. He is a mangled mess standing before the crowd. This is the Savior. Just think about it in this moment. He's there for me. He's there for me. He did this for me. He could have walked out at any moment. Bloody, pulp, mangled mess. And Pilate says, behold the man. And it's like in this moment, he's saying, is that not enough? Look, he's a mangled mess. He's a bloody mess. Is that not enough? Is this not enough? And the crowd was not satisfied with scourging. And they cry out for the Son of God to be crucified. Nail Him to the cross. This is what they cry. At this point, I just want to remind you who is standing there a bloody pulp and a mangled mess for us. That is the mighty one. That is the eternal Lord. That is the creator and the king of the ends of the earth. And this is the picture of Jesus stooping down to save us. He stoops to the lowest of places to save us. Could have walked out at any moment. At any moment. I want you to be encouraged by this. I want you to be freshly amazed by the condescension of Christ. He stoops down to the lowest of places to save us. I want to ask you this. How thankful are you this morning, disciples of Jesus? How thankful are you this morning of the love of God that He's shown you in Christ? Could He have stooped any lower than this to save us? This is the supreme demonstration of God's love for you. He loves us. He paid the price for us. He's here for us. Suffering for us. I want you to see Jesus before Pilate and I want you to take note of a man that is a perfect example of enduring suffering to the glory of God. This is it. I want you to see Him vividly in your mind. That's the example. And He blazes the trail for all to follow. His example here should prepare us, His disciples, to suffer. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus did. That's the encouragement there. 
You haven't even come close to as much as He has suffered. He blazed the trail for you as the example. This is the Savior. And I want to remind you at this point, this story before Jesus, before the Romans, mangled, bloody mess. The, uh, the original recipients of Mark's Gospel almost certainly were early Christians in Rome under persecution. So I want you to imagine Mark penning this letter and sending it to him. And I want you to imagine being one of those early Christians in Rome. And you flip open this story and you have this inspired record from Mark about Jesus before the Romans. Jesus scourged. Jesus standing firm. Jesus going all the way to the cross for us. And I want you to imagine how encouraging that that would have been. These Roman Christians persecuting Rome, they're experiencing the same things that we just saw from Jesus. They were flogged. They were crucified in mass number. I want you to imagine how many martyrs in church history in the final five, maybe 15 minutes of your life, how many of them do you think thought about this story? That Jesus knows what this feels like. Jesus, Jesus blazed the trail. This story is incredible has been a comfort and encouragement to many martyrs through church history. And we need to know Jesus. We need to worship Him for the picture that we see of Christ in this scourging. Verse 15 says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered Him to be crucified. The scourging was already done. Having scourged. Past tense. Having scourged Him, the crowd still aren't satisfied. Scream out for His crucifixion. And Pilate caves. Pilate caves to the demand of the crowd. They demand and He condemns Jesus to crucifixion. And I want you to pay attention to this. They demanded that the Son of God be punished according to the full rigor of of Roman law. I was so encouraged by this this week. So encouraged by this. They demanded the highest legal penalty in Rome. Crucifixion. It was the full extent of Roman punishment. They demanded that Jesus be crucified. No other way would do. Crucify and nail Him to the cross. So the sinless Son of God dies under the highest legal penalty. I just asked this. Does that encourage any? That's a gospel picture. That encouraged you this morning. This is a picture when Jesus hangs on His cross, He is suffering the penalty from God the judge. And the picture here is this, is that He was paid the highest legal penalty in His death. And what does that mean? If we really grab a hold of that, there's no higher legal penalty than the one that Jesus has experienced for us. And what does that mean? What's the takeaway? It means that once He bears it, there's no more left for me. There's no more left for us. Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because He took it all. He took the full penalty of the law for us. There's no more. There's no more. It's like trying to start a fire with ashes. They've already been consumed. There's nothing left to be burned. There's no more punishment to give. This is a gospel picture. Pilate now gives his judgment. We know from history that he would have sat on, on what's known as the Bema seat, the judgment seat, and he would have given his verdict, his authoritative verdict. And he caves, and he becomes Pilate the coward. He refuses to, to deal with Jesus in a truthful and honest way. And he condemns to death the only sinless man that has ever lived. 
He condemns to death the only Son of God. What I want you to see here, this is, this is among the greatest of sins ever committed. Among the greatest wicked acts that have ever been done by man. And I want, to, I want you to see in Pilate, I want you to see an example of a man who put his career before everything. His goal in his life was climbing the Roman ladder. Pilate couldn't bear the thought of a bad report of his leadership being sent back to Rome. And his love for his career caused him to fear the Jews. Listen to John 19 verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. You think the Sanhedrin cared anything about Caesar? Do you see what they did? They just pushed the hot button. They, just, they knew his weak spot. They just appealed to Caesar. And they said, if you don't do something about this, we're going to tell Caesar. And you're not a friend of Caesar. And those words were the trigger that made the man cave. Those words were the trigger that made the man cave. He violated his conscience to save his career. He stands as an example to us of a man whose upward mobility, career ambitions caused him to reject Jesus Christ. And I wonder if anybody here needs this warning today. Making a God out of your job will cause you to break allegiance with Christ. Be warned by this example. Brothers and sisters in Christ, be warned by this example. Pilate was so consumed with his job that he was ignorant that the one that he judged would, would eternally be the one that judged him. And we know how this story plays out. Jesus was silent before Pilate in his trial, but that same Christ who was silent, He's going to roar from the judgment seat. Pilate was blind to this because he loved his job. He bowed down to his idol. History tells us that shortly after this, Pilate was fired and he was banished from the Roman Empire by the Emperor Caligula. In less than three years of the death of Jesus, Pilate commits suicide in exile. And this man, this is a picture of a man who lost his idol. He lost his idol. His job as a Roman politician was the thing that he poured his entire life into. And when he lost it, he believed that he no longer had a reason to live. He bowed down to a false god and he reaped what he sowed. Bowing down to this false god of career and money and climbing the Roman ladder caused him to reject Christ. And that is a good picture. This is a good picture of what false gods and idols will do in your life. They will destroy you and they will cause you to reject Christ. Just like Pilate, you must make your choice about Jesus. He leans into the crowd. He says, what must I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? I cannot think of a better question that every human being has to answer. What must you do with Jesus? And if you just try to ride the fence just like Pilate did, you know how he tried to do that? He didn't want to take a side. Jesus won't let you do that. If you try to ride the fence, you will die. And unless you die without repenting of your sins and putting your trust in this Christ, you will wake up in hell forever. This is the clear teaching of the Word of God. Everyone must decide what they must do with Jesus who is called the Christ. This is the ultimate question. I want to finish up our time by zoning in on this story of Jesus and Barabbas, this prisoner exchange. 
We see this in the story. All four gospel writers mention Barabbas by name. Now that is, that is more surprising than you might think because there's actually very few stories in the gospels that are mentioned by all four writers. So the question is why? Why, why all four say his name? And, and what we see here is that this is important. This is an emphasis in the gospel story. It's important enough in scripture to be repeated four times over. And what I want you to see in this story of this prisoner exchange between Jesus and Barabbas, I want you to see a picture of substitutionary atonement. The glorious doctrine of substitutionary atonement. If this is boring to you, you, your wood is wet. You're not thinking right. You're not seeing this right. This is the glorious doctrine of substitutionary atonement. You understand this? You understand the gospel. If you don't understand this, you have no chance of understanding why Jesus died for you. Substitutionary atonement. Barabbas. I'll remind you, Barabbas is a man and he's sitting on death row this morning of this story. Almost certainly, he was supposed to be crucified on the same cross that Jesus died on along with the two other thieves that died beside Christ. He woke up that morning on death row. Barabbas had already been tried, found guilty, and sentenced to death, and there was most likely already a cross with his name on it. He sat under a death sentence. And I want us to vividly see ourselves in the place of Barabbas. I'll remind you this morning that we have all sinned against God. There is no such thing in the Word of God as a little sinner. Every one of you and me, we have committed the greatest sin in the Word of God. You say, what do you mean? The greatest commandment in the Word of God is to love God with everything you have. You have committed the greatest sin thousands of times over in your life. You're not a little sinner. You are a Barabbas. You're a murderer. You're a notorious criminal to God. A A rebel. All have sinned. This is us. This is a picture of us. We deserve hell. We are a church full of Barabbases. This is us. We've all lived in rebellion against the king. We, just like him, when he woke up that morning, he's under the death sentence. There's a cross with his name on it. Outside of Christ, the wrath of God abides on us. We are dead men and dead women walking. We are under the condemnation of the just judge. There is literally a cross with our name on it in eternity. We are marked for death. Under the sentence of death. Under the curse of God outside of Christ. This is all of us. Barabbas woke up that morning. Probably, actually, he probably didn't sleep all night long because he knew the next day that his life was going to be taken from him, that he was going to die. So I want you to fight to see yourself in Barabbas' skin. And you're sitting on death row and you're sitting there that morning, the last day of your life. And you're thinking, this is it. This is it. I don't know how old he was, but this is it. How many ever days he had been on the planet? This is it. This is the last one. And I want you to imagine you're in his skin and you know that you're about to die, a marked man under the sentence of death. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, the God-man, the Lord Jesus, walks into the room, takes your place. I want you to imagine the unthinkable joy, unspeakable joy, 
fills your soul, that fills your heart when the God-man comes in and takes your place. And Jesus comes and He dies in place of a murderer, in place of a rebel, in place of a criminal. Jesus steps forward and dies in His place. The righteous one crucified, the criminal walks free. If that's not a gospel picture, I don't know what is. This is what happened to us. This is what happened to us. The righteous for the sinful. The innocent for the guilty. He's bearing our punishment that we deserved. There's no appeal that we can make to God the judge because we're filthy and guilty in our sin. And undeserving, unmerited grace, Jesus comes and He dies in our place. This is the great exchange. The great exchange. We deserve death and we get life. Jesus deserved life and He's punished in our place. That's the exchange. Christ is nailed to the cross that was intended for Barabbas and every believer. I want to encourage you with this this morning. Christ was nailed to a cross that was intended for you. If you could just see yourself there, if you could just see yourself worthy of this punishment, do you know how much more that you would love Him? You see Him rightly. If you minimize sin in your life, you will minimize the Savior. You have to see yourself as this criminal, deserving of death. This is the deep, deep love of Jesus. This is the amazing grace. The church has sung about this for centuries. And what happens is when, when a man or a woman truly tastes of these things, of the substitutionary death of Christ, there's something in that moment where, that, where Jesus becomes the one whom their soul loves. They can't go anywhere else but Him because He's loved them to the end. He should have walked out on them, but He died in their place. Died for their sins. The deep love of Christ. The unsearchable love of Christ. The glorious grace of God. In this story, we see that God has made a way to satisfy His justice. You say, what do you mean by that? This is a story of mercy. Yeah, but it's a story of mercy through justice. God didn't look at Barabbas and say, oh, don't worry, bro. You're good. Just say you're sorry to God, and then you'll be forgiven. That is not how God forgives sin. God showed His justice. Somebody paid Barabbas' fine and his sin debt. This is how God forgives us, is that He extends mercy to sinners by satisfying His justice. That's the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, the bloody payment. This is the only way mercy comes to sinful humanity, through the crucifixion of God's only Son. This is the glorious Gospel of Christ. So as Jesus stands before the Romans, this is the judge of all the earth allowing Himself to be judged for us, for you. The One who will one day judge all that He has made is allowing Himself to be judged even to death for us. This is the Gospel. This is the picture. And I want to encourage you, before we move past this, this is not automatically good news to your life. This is not good news for you unless you respond to it. You say, what do you mean? Jesus doesn't die and everybody goes to heaven. You have to respond to Jesus. You have to, this, this is a free gift of salvation. Eternal life is a free gift, but you have to receive it on Jesus' terms. You say, what do you mean? Jesus the King, the resurrected King, commands you and invites you to repent of your sins and to put your trust in Him. Repentance and faith. This is the only way to receive this gift. What this means is that Jesus is calling us, calling us to lose our life and find our life in Christ. The ex 
exact opposite of what you just saw happen in Pilate's life. Christ calls us to lose our ambitions, to lose our self-life, that we die to all those things and we follow this Christ. It is a call from Jesus to lose your life and to find your life in Him. It's a call from Christ to rest from all your religious works of trying to be made right with God by all your religious works. It's a call to rest in what Jesus has done for us on His cross. Can you imagine the twisted the twistedness in the mind of God, if He would have allowed His Son to be filleted wide open, ripped wide open and mangled, if there was another way to the Father apart from Jesus. If there was another way, can you imagine the twistedness? So why would He let His Son go through that? Why would the Son endure that if there was another way? This is, there, there's no other way. That's the point there. There's no other way to the Father except through Christ. And as the church of Jesus, I know most of us, we believe this gospel, we serve this Christ, we love this Christ. And I want to encourage you today to freshly rejoice in this glorious gospel. And the reason I say that, as you all know, if you're honest with yourself, you know that, you, that coldness to Jesus can creep in. And I'm telling you, in every season where there's coldness to Christ, there's coldness to His cross and to His suffering. There's coldness to your personal sin. You are not seeing your sin like you need to see your sin. And you're not seeing the Savior like you need to see the Savior. I just encourage you this morning to be freshly encouraged. This is, there's no other place to go. There's no other source for joy. There's no other source for love to Christ than His suffering for us in our place. This is it. You stare at Jesus in His suffering until the Holy Spirit produces these affections in you. This is the only place to go. Don't ever move past this. Don't ever get over it. We were the Barabbases. Jesus was nailed to the cross in our place. In our sinful record, the murderers put away forever. And God no longer remembers any of our sin. Any of our sin. He's perfected us forever with one sacrifice. It's the power of His Gospel. And I just say as we close, hallelujah to the Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah to Christ Jesus that laid down His life for us. Amen. Let's pray. Christ, we just praise You today, Lord. We give You the praise that You are due. And we say it, Lord, from our hearts, from our souls, Lord, that there is no news like this and there's none like You, Lord Jesus. There's none that would even begin to rival You in Your glory and Your love and Your majesty and Your might. And we ask, Lord, as Your people, Lord, we ask that You would mark us, Lord, with Your glorious Gospel, that You would drive it so deep in us, Lord. Help us to never turn away. Lord, help us to never forsake this glorious Gospel. Help us to never stop emphasizing it, Lord, in our lives. God, we ask that You would raise us up more and more as people of the cross, Lord. That that we would know nothing among this world except Christ crucified. God, do that in this church more and more. Lord, we ask You to do it in the name of Jesus.